Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. On today's show, I talk with David Finkel, a time management and productivity expert and the author of the book, The Freedom Formula, How to Succeed in Business Without Sacrificing Your Family, Health, or Life. We're all searching for ways to get more productive, get smarter about how we spend our time and avoid burnout. I don't know about you, but ironically, I feel busier than ever during this COVID lockdown, and I'm searching for ways to get smarter about how I spend my time. And in this episode, you'll get practical advice about how to get more out of your day and become a better investor, leader, spouse, parent, and friend. Before we jump into it, I want to offer a quick reminder. If you enjoy the Good Life podcast, please leave a review. And I invite you to reach out to me on my Twitter or email. My Twitter is Sean P. Murray 111. And my email is Sean, that's S-E-A-N, at theinvestorspodcast.com. I hope you enjoy my conversation with David as much as I do. My friends, I bring you David Finkel. You're listening to The Good Life on the Real-Time Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and habits that help you live a meaningful, flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well-lived. David, welcome to The Good Life. I appreciate that, Sean. I'm excited to be here. I'm glad to have you with me. So David, you work with high-level business executives, with entrepreneurs, with professionals, and helping them become more productive, working smarter, not harder, and helping people carve back some life from having work kind of take over in their lives. And you have a new book out called The Freedom Formula, which is great. I highly recommend it. It helps people who feel overwhelmed and burned out from life, where work is kind of crowding out the relationships and personal time. You mentioned in the book that this is sort of a culmination of a 20-year journey. So I thought we'd start with just how you came about to write and talk and speak on this subject of getting more out of life or having work-life balance and be more productive. Well, Sean, I mean, I started off like a lot of people did, building a company. And the first time I did it, I flopped. I was 22 years old, failed in that business, went back, finished up my college degree, and then I graduated and didn't know what the heck I wanted to do. I started a second company and I built that company to a seven-figure profit, sold it in 2005. And what I found was that first time I did it, Sean, I did it more through hard work. I got it out 70, 80-hour weeks. I bought into this myth that the first 40 hours you work are for yourself. And then anything after that's when you really get ahead. And it was just junk. What I found is we create value through how we use our time. We don't create value through hours and effort. And so this book, The Freedom Formula, and this part has been, how do you, in fact, create value in a job for a company, in a business that you own, without necessarily having to get out more hours? Because that's just a faulty model. And it really, really is one that I take personally, because I'm a dad now. When I had my kids, my first two sons were twins. They're 11 now. It changed everything. It was no longer an option to be traveling two, three weeks out of every month. It was no longer an option to be working 80-hour weeks, non-negotiable. So with my limited inventory of time, what am I going to do differently? And I approached it that way. And that was, again, almost over a decade ago. I can certainly relate to a lot of what you just talked about, having been in my career through various organizations and jobs where, in my mindset, it was about 
how much time I put in. And I was even rewarded by sticking around later in the office. The first startup I was in, it was sort of like you were shamed if you left at four, at five o'clock. And I mean, I didn't have kids at the time. So I was just on the treadmill saying, hey, I'm just going to keep going. I can outwork anybody here and I'm going to climb up the corporate ladder and eventually got married, had kids, changed my mindset. And you introduce this really cool concept around mindset and thinking about work. You call it, there's two ways to think about it, the time and effort economy and the value economy. So maybe talk about that because I found it really helpful. So, I mean, most of us live in a world where we think we get paid for hours and effort and maybe to a little degree for attitude. We call that the time and effort economy. And the time and effort economy says things like, if I don't keep checking my inbox, if I'm not accessible, I may miss something important or my boss might think I'm not working. The value economy says, look, you're not getting paid for hours and effort. You need hours and you need effort, but you need to create value. And ultimately, everyone works in the value economy. So the value economy says, if I keep interrupting my best work by checking these apps and checking my alerts, then I can't create value. Or if my boss sees that I don't create value, that's what's going to upset her. Not I'm not accessible or responsive. And I think it's really important because when we make that change to thinking about What's the greatest contribution I give to this company, to this team, to this department, to this division, to this whatever project it might be? I don't need hours raw, undifferentiated hours. I need a higher quality of hours. I need quality chunks of my best attention, an hour, three hours. And if I can get those consistent hours and put them into the more important things, what happens is I can create more value in less time. It's not hours and efforts. It's value created. And I think we have to keep that in mind. Because we've convinced ourselves, oh, I just need to get out more time. And it becomes a trap. When I work really hard, what happens is I start doing the wrong things. And that doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help my company, my employer, my employees. It doesn't help anybody. I've got to focus on those things that actually matter with blocks of my best attention. There's a couple of things going on there that are really important that I just want to focus in on. One is there are certain times of the day when we are at our best, when we are just ready to go. For me, it's when I wake up and I have that first cup of coffee, my mind is at its best. Later in the day, I'm not as good at creative work. So that's part of it is what part of the day are we at our best. And the second part is to what you were saying around value. What do we do with that time? Putting those two things together, which if you look at most schedules, and I have to say I'm guilty like many of us, that I often will check email during that time when I'm ready to be the most productive. That's right. I look at any listener to this particular podcast and what I would really encourage you to do, if you want to enjoy the good life, you have to just look at your schedule, whether you have an inventory of 40 hours or a 60 hour work week, just change how you do five or eight hours a week. That's the starting point. We talk about focus days versus push days. A focus day is the one or two days a week that you're going to carve out a two, three, or four-hour block once in that day when you're at your best. And I'm a morning person since I've had kids, so it's the first thing I do. And then on every push day, I'm going to carve out one or one-and-a-half-hour focus block. I can do everything else the same, and I call this my buffet strategy of time management. Think about it this way. You go to a buffet, and I love Vegas buffets. I mean, ooh, I can just pick right out. But I know that the most important plate of food at a buffet is my first plate of food. If I can have that first plate be nutritious of good stuff, vegetables, maybe high quality protein, even if I eat the junk, I've already got the nutrition from that first plate and 
my stomach is partially filled, so I won't eat so much of the crap. And time is the same way. So for me, I'll make sure that on Tuesdays when I come into the office from 8.30 all the way through to 11.30, those three hours that I have there, that's my focus block for the week. I'm not going to do junk stuff. Not going to check email first. I'm going to have the away message already set. I'm going to have the stage set the day before. So when I walk in that morning, my highest value project is right there. And it might be a meeting with a key constituency of people. It might be a project that I've worn one-to-one. I'm looking at doing something that truly creates the most value for my role or for my company. And if I do that, five hours a week that I just make small shifts, one focus a day a week for a three-hour block, then two of the other push days, you're just changing an hour. I've changed just five hours, but I spread that over the course of the next year. That gives me an extra five and a half work weeks of full-time, my best time to focus on those things that matter. And here's the one last thing I'll share. If you don't have it blocked in as a recurring schedule in your appointment, you're going to go right over it and do other stuff. I know it. I've shared this with executives, business owners, entrepreneurs. When they put it in their calendar as a recurring appointment, they're going to be 80 to 90% true to holding their focus time for high value activities. And that's all you need. You don't need to be perfect. You just need to be better about reclaiming some of your best time for your higher value activities. And that's a simple, easy tactic to do it. Put it in as a recurring appointment in your Google Calendar or your Outlook Calendar. And that way, you know that you're not going to schedule over it. And please don't take the first hit of email or social media. Because once you start down that road, you and I both know where it ends. You're going to be left kind of jonesing for more of it. You got to go cold turkey for just a two or three hour block. And then you can go and get your fix of email. But for that block, you're going to create value. One thing that I kept coming back to as I read your book, I was thinking about it in the back of my mind, it was Warren Buffett. And we here on the Investors Podcast Network, we talk a lot about value investing. And Warren is widely considered the best investor of his generation. And if you look at how he spends his time, again, I just was, I was reading your book, I thought, well, Warren does that. Well, Warren does that. I mean, just to give a few examples, he, he doesn't use email. He doesn't have a computer on his desk. He knows that reading and thinking is the highest value of an investor. This is someone who is a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, but he spends the majority of his day in his office reading and thinking because he has eliminated all this stuff. He's literally figured out the A time and is doing it. And look at the superpower you have when you do that. I think Warren is just a great example. Your system describes something that Warren sort of figured out through the years, and I think we could all benefit from it. Totally agree with that. I mean, the whole idea of the freedom formula was this idea of how do you mechanically operationalize? What does it mean to work smarter? Everyone says I'm supposed to work smarter. Don't tell me I'm supposed to do that. Give me the nitty gritty to actually do that in the face of all this stuff. Now, Warren has done a phenomenal job at it, right? That's why he's as wealthy as he is. He knows he creates the most value by making really smart investment decisions, buying companies, which for him means pulling in data in structured ways that he can think and sift and connect the dots between that side. He knows that. Wonderful. Imagine if he was doing texts or emails the whole day through, like some of these traders you'll see online. No wonder they're not going to have the same result that he is, that they don't give a fraction of their best attention to what they're doing in a way that he does with a laser focus for hours over the course of a day. It's truly remarkable. 
One of the images that really struck me in your book was the graphic of your calendar. You share kind of a scaled back version of your calendar, but it shows these blocks of time. And it looks like a typical Outlook calendar or iCalendar on a computer. You've actually blocked out focus time. And it really got me thinking about my own calendar. When I saw that, I thought, okay, I've got to put that in the calendar. Otherwise, it doesn't happen, right? You just blow right through it. So I love that. And I'm going to start using that. What I wanted to get into was what do you do to block things out? Because you already mentioned email is sort of a dopamine hit. What do you do to stay focused during a focus block? Let's take one step back. The first exercise I would challenge someone to do before I even block off my focus time, we call it creating your time value matrix. Take Pareto's principle, put it on steroids, take it to its most productive extreme. What I need to do, I need to get clear in writing. What do I do that actually creates the most value? What are the things that I do that truly contribute the most? Here's the interesting part. The most successful people don't do more. They do a heck of a lot less, but the less that they do creates a heck of a lot more value. And so, you know, Pareto's principle, it's most people's distinction around time. 80% of what I do is very low value, creates 20% of my result. We call that D time, that 80% junk. And we say, okay, well, 20% of what I do creates 80% of the value. That's C time. Think about it. Four times less input, creating four times more output. That means every one hour of C time, 16 times more valuable than an hour of D time. And that makes sense, right? But most people stop there. If 20% of what I do gives me 80% of the result, then 20% of the 20% gives me 80% of the 80%. And the math works out this magic 4% gives us 64% of our result, and we do it one more time. And the math works out to be roughly 1% in gives me half the result. Now, I don't believe that this is a law like gravity. I think it's a really good model for how to think about it. When we identify in writing what are A and B level activities, here's the thing. Going back to our focus blocks, I only do A or B level activities during those focus blocks. And if I do that, 80, 90% of the time, if I don't have to be perfect, but if I'm a a B minus student or better at that, I'm going to get a significant bump to what I can create and the value that I can produce. That's great. So we want to fill that focus time with A and B level work, which are the select activities that add the most value to our business, to our organization, or to our portfolio. For an investor that might be reading an annual report or studying the investment philosophies of other great investors. But I think it's important to share something that I've noticed in my career, and it's that A-level time is not only alone time. If I can take an hour and coach a junior employee to be more productive and add more value, I consider that A-time as well. You hit it right on the head. If you could see in my office, there's a board over on the side there, and I put little tick marks. I've learned this back in the days when I used to play sports. I make visual and shrink the units of accountability by seeing these little tick marks on my board. And so one of the categories is I have a goal that every week I have three quality coaching for development conversations with my leadership team. Three. Now, for example, later today, I'm going to be talking with our COO. And she's phenomenal. Been with me 11 years now. She's worth taking the extra time to think about what are the skills that she needs to develop or not me solving for her, but me asking questions for her to get better. So going back to this, me leveraging staff is a great use of time, 
especially developing other people so they can go higher up that value hierarchy. Absolutely. The other thing you mention in your book is the importance of actually writing down the activities that create the most value. There's something about the activity of putting your thoughts on paper. It forces us to think more clearly. It often reveals the flaws in our thinking. It avoids what I call muddled thinking. In fact, Jeff Bezos of Amazon is a big believer in this too. He has banned PowerPoint because he thinks it leads to lazy reasoning. If someone is going to pitch him on an acquisition or a new project, he requires that they write out a thesis for why. And sometimes these go to four or five pages. He believes there's something about the writing that really forces us to think through all the connections and understand our subject. Writing organizers are thinking, no question about it. One of the things in the Freedom Form, we have that worksheet that talks about this time value matrix. When we can structure information so it's visually obvious, it makes it easy for us to be very focused. If I've got two people I lead or 200 people I lead, it doesn't matter. If my people don't know what their A and B activities are and what their D activities are, you know, the game's over. Notice what I said is my D activities and my A and B activities. I don't worry so much about C activities. This is a little bit of a hack, a little bit of a shortcut that your listeners can really learn after doing this for a decade. I used to think your C activities matter. They don't. D activities matter because that's where I rob time from. Those are the things that I eliminate, delegate, delete altogether, or defer to later, or design out so they don't come up to begin with. That's where I get my raw time back. The A and B level activities, what matters, C will take care of itself. The attorney is going to do his billable work. The other consultant, she's going to do her billable hours or whatever it might be. But the A and B level activities, that's the stuff that often isn't urgent. And so it gets forgotten. So we rob from D that mass 80% and reinvest in these A and B level activities, 4% sweet spot and this 1% magic that creates so much of our result. Well, you talk in the book about, I would call them the barriers to making the jump between the time and effort economy and the value economy. You call them actually the five chains. You get shackled. We all get shackled to this idea that work harder, we can get ahead, or maybe we intellectually understand the value economy, but things sort of hold us back from really making the jump. So maybe we could go through those because I think I'm guilty of several of them and it would be helpful just to talk through what prevents us from taking the steps to chunking out our time, focusing, doing the A, B, C, D, and all that. Before we get into how do you operationalize working smarter, you have to ask what's holding you back. So the first chain, as I call it a faulty model, and we talked about that. It's the belief that we're getting paid for hours and effort. And unfortunately, Sean, a lot of companies or a lot of bad managers push their people to believe it. And as I say this, if I go backwards in time seven or eight years ago, I was that bad manager. Somebody didn't get back to my email right away. I was thinking, hey, why didn't you get back with me? I'd even say that. What I did is I trained them to be responsive over creating value. If Teresa, for example, and her focus days are Tuesdays and on Thursdays, if she's in her focus time, do I really want her to take and answer an email that's low value? Would I want her to interrupt doing high value work to do my low value junk? No way. I have to be careful there. The second chain that holds us into this time and effort economy, it's actually a medical condition. It's called controlitis, the inflammation of your control gland. Think about it. Most of us that are success-minded people, we're totally freaked out with the thought of being out of control. 
So we grip tighter. And because of that, we don't delegate, we micromanage. All that's driven by the desire for control, which is driven by the fear of feeling helpless and being out of control. Oh, I got burned once, right? That's never going to happen again. Well, that's a stupid thing to say. Low value stuff shouldn't be micromanaged by you. The high value stuff, perhaps. Third chain, lack of clarity, right? What is it that we really do that creates the most value? And we talk about in the freedom formula, creating a 90-day plan of action, a rolling quarterly plan of action on one page, not 20 pages, but one page every quarter. The third is lack of depth. What we mean by that is everything's working well, but then Sheila gets sick. And now we're scrambling because there's no depth there. No one knows how to do what she does. So strategic depth are the systems, the cross-trained team, and the culture that says we always have each other's back and we back each other up. Nothing's kept just in one person's head. The fifth is outdated time habits or our outdated time habits. The world has changed, but how we think about time, how we use technology, how we design our workflow, it hasn't kept pace. And those are the five chains that hold me into the time and effort economy that I need to break. All of those are so important and we could do a deeper dive. But let's just start with that last one, outdated time habits, because right now, many of us are working from home, many of us for the first time, a lot of the meetings that people were in before that now are forced to be on Zoom or are just dropped entirely, you realize, well, maybe that meeting didn't need to happen. So there's that part of it. But there's also the need to be more self-directed, to be disciplined when you're working from home, to stay on task, to stay on focus, to rethink what you're doing. And I guess for many of us, we're realizing that Times have changed. Technology is here. We can think about our time differently. We're not commuting, which is another one. So what are some of the outdated time habits that we can kind of throw out the window? Let me come in at two different directions. So I'm going to give a very concrete mundane one, and I'm going to give a one that's a little bit more analytic. So the, the more mundane one, think about email. Email is no longer a new technology. It's been around for decades now. I remember moving that move. But we use email to manage to-dos, horrible tool for that. It's the wrong tool. Email is like one of those little message slips you used to get in paper. They're great to give you a quick prompt. It's in writing, so you have a visual marker. But the next slip is going to replace that slip. It's going to get mislaid. So there are tools like project management tools or to-do lists online that we can share that are so much better for managing that. I know a lot of people that also try to have adult conversations through email. Horrible in today's world. Can't do it. No tone, no ability to have sensitivity to how it's responded. I see people trying to use email as a way of giving updates. Well, what they do though, is they give it as a kind of like a blah. Structured reports are so much better. A dashboard, or even like we use with our clients, we call it a big rock report. It's one of the pieces that you would have read in the Freedom Formula. But we find that if we can have information be structured, it lowers the info load on the other person. When I look at a big rock report, if I had the same information come as a paragraph format in an email, it would probably take me 15 minutes to parse through that. When I get it from my key direct reports, here's my one or two big rocks from the prior week and how I did. Here are my victories, here are my challenges, and here are the other bullet point updates. When I get it in this, this structured way, it probably takes me four or five minutes to go through it for a person. Three times faster, and I understand and digest it and can use it better. So that's an example of an outdated time habit, for sure. Another example would be a lot of us think that, oh, 
we should have job descriptions. Job descriptions matter. Here's your roles and your tasks that you're responsible for. But think about going home. If you're working remote, the biggest point failure from people who work remote, and I know this, I've done remote workforce. Hundreds of people have worked for me over the last 20 years, all remote, never had a, an office where we had everybody. We were scattered over North America primarily. And what I've learned is I can't just take a job description. I've got to go one more section and ask the question, what does great performance in this role look like? And how can the person know that they're doing a great job? How are we measuring their performance quantitatively, qualitatively? For example, if Bonnie is responsible for scheduling in your office, your goal is how can you have 240 hours scheduled per week that are held? If I give it to her that way, I can say you're responsible for the schedule, Bonnie. That helps. But when I say, here's what great performance looks like, here's how you know you're doing a great job, here's how I know as a company you're doing a great job, it makes it so much easier for your staff to thrive remotely and for you to know that they're doing a great job. And so that's an example of an outdated time habit, which is we think, oh, I just go do my job remotely. No, I need to be much greater degree of specificity of what does success look like and how is it measured in this role quantitatively and also qualitatively. You know, what I like about that is you're updating the job description for the value economy. Rather than listing responsibilities, you're being very specific, saying something like, if you can schedule X number of calls or produce X number of quality proposals, that's what success looks like. That's how you can add value to the firm. It doesn't matter so much how many hours it takes you or even how you do it necessarily. What matters is if you hit the number. One more thing I'll share for the remote people who it's new for them to go remote, whether it's just you or you're managing some other people, here's another secret tip, which is shrink the units of accountability. So when you're in an office environment, it's easy to have, hey, let me know at the end of the week or let me know at the end of the month how this came up. But when you're working from a remote office, there's so many distractions. I want to have daily and weekly progress check-ins in some mechanism, whether that's online through a project tool that's updated daily, whether that's reporting that gets reviewed weekly. I can't wait a month. It's too long for me to go off course. I've got to shrink the units of accountability daily or at the very longest, weekly. You know, what I really like about chunking it down and making each milestone a little more accessible is there's an emotional component, that passion or the zest for diving into it. And when you've got a victory, when you meet a smaller goal like that, it motivates you to get to the next goal. So if you can get through that first week or two and have your plan, all of a sudden you're like, hey, I can do this. I can think about the next milestone. And you're sort of building in successes. It reminds me of if you ever run like a 10K or a marathon or something like that, if you've got someone cheering for you every mile or so and you run across the band plane or whatever, it sort of like pumps you up. You say, okay, just think about the next mile and you eventually get through it. That's right. Whether it be for myself or for my staff, the way we inspire is that people need to see progress. They need to feel progress. Now, I don't make up progress, but I need to make as a leader of myself or of a team, I need to make progress visible. I gave the example earlier about that board where I check off my three conversations or more of real coaching for development conversations with my direct reports. When I do that, when I can make it visible, whether it be on a daily or a weekly basis, it makes it so much easier to sustain the change, which is why on the Big Rock report we go through in the Freedom Formula, 
one of the things we have there is a section for victories. And when we can see our victories, we get those micro doses of dopamine. We feel good about it. And it sustains us because let's face it, times can be hard. People say no, clients have tough conversations with us, suppliers fall through. But if we can find that we're making progress toward things that matter, it's much easier for us to stay the course. And when we stay the course long enough, now we can compound those changes over time. And that's how we succeed. I want to go back to the topic of email as well, because it's one of those that just seems to be the thing that holds many of us back is going again and again to our inbox. And you mentioned in focused time that you want to block that out. One thing I've noticed, if I do manage to have an hour or two of blocking out email, my email gets batched, right? Like all of those messages that I was going to check one at a time are sitting there. And I've actually noticed that sometimes the email that came in right at the beginning of, let's say I do two hours of writing, it's already answered. Because if I wait two hours to check it, it sometimes answers itself because someone got copied on it and they're answering. There's all these advantages to batching that we don't get if we are constantly reacting to email. That's right. Here's two more that you get. Number one, the more email I send, the more I get. Because every time I send an email, it increases the odds that someone emails me back. So when I batch, I actually send less out because I might handle two or three things in one email. Number two, the faster I respond, the more email I get. So if I can age my email for an hour or a day, or in some cases a week or two, I get a lot less of it. So by batching, I automatically am getting the benefit of delaying. And by doing that, I don't get that instant messenger back and forth where you're almost having a conversation through email, which is not what it's intended to do at all. It's a poor quality substitute for a messenger app or an actual conversation by far. One more thing I love about email, I call it the one, two, three subject line. First of all, if I can make it easier for all the people who receive email from me, hopefully they'll reciprocate and make it easier for me. So the subject line is really important. No more is it okay to put down checking in. No, 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 no. We need a much more beefed up email line. It could be status update on Sorensen project. But more than that, I should put a one, two, or three at the beginning of the email. A one says, this is urgent and truly important. Drop everything and look at this. Hopefully, we don't live our life in that urgency. In my company, I might see a number one email once, maybe twice a quarter. For me, staff members might see it once or twice per month. It shouldn't be more than that. That means we're too reactive. A two means, hey, there's something you need to do with this email, but do it in a reasonable time frame. If you got it at eight o'clock in the morning, by end of day. If you got it at four in the afternoon, by sometime early tomorrow morning. A three is an FYI, and here's where the numbers help. I could send an email that says, number two, Sean, and then it might have three, Teresa, comma, Larry. So Teresa and Larry know they don't have to do that. And I know a lot of people do that by using the CC line or whatever. But what it does is it lets you look through your inbox and you can triage and batch a lot better. Oh, I've got a couple number twos. I better look at those quickly. The number threes, I can deal with those later. I'm doing higher value stuff now. And again, one of the best principles of design is if we can structure information to make it easier for the person to digest it, we're saving everyone time, which is why then what I do is I audit my email. I say, who do I send email the most to? Who sends most to me? 
And the people I send the most to, I reach out to them saying, hey, tell me, what are two or three things that I could do making your life easier? Could I CC you less? Could I put all the three emails into one? Could I bullet point things out better? Could I enumerate the list? Tell me what I can do to make your life easier. And here are two things that you could do for me that would make it much easier for me to reduce the email burden, the info load that your emails are causing to me. And when organizations start having these conversations in a really open manner, they're very productive to reduce the info load that email is, which is a drag on many organizations. Absolutely. And if you look at the amount of email you get and you think about the cognitive load of looking at each email anew, trying to figure out if it's one, two, or three, if it's not labeled, you know, trying to figure out on your own, is this urgent? Is this just FYI? Do I need to do something? That time, if you multiply it times, I don't know if people are getting, what, 100 emails a day in some places, 150. Even if it's an extra 15, 20, 30 seconds, multiply that times 100 emails times 220 workdays or something. Now you're starting to talk about just sitting there trying to figure out what this email is about. We were hosting a conference and I did a quick survey. And on average, they were wasting 12 to 14 hours per week on low-value email per week. A day and a half of their working life was junk email. And I don't think things are better. And you can make it better doing the things we've said. Also, you can leverage your personal assistant with your inbox, which is one of the things I shared in the Freedom Formula. But the key is when you really see the cumulative cost to your career or to your company, it gives you the motivation to do something about it. So let me give you an advanced question. I try to get focused time. I'm working on writing right now. It requires a lot of effort for my mind to be at its best. I'll carve out the time. I'll go into my computer. I'll tell myself I'm not going to look at email, but my phone will be close by, of course. I find all of a sudden I'm looking at something on my phone. Even if it doesn't give me a notification, there's something that sort of draws me in. How do you get beyond that? That's great. I'm going to give you a couple answers. So first of all, I'll share it with the story. Inside of the Freedom Formula, in the very last chapter, we talk about leveraging better design. We talked about Maureen, and she was the chief information officer, technology officer at a technology company. And so she talked about how she went to a communal area, got away from her office with all the visual reminders on a wall of all the other projects she had to do. She was away from her desktop, but she forgot about her watch, which of course was a smart watch, and then she laughed about it. So two things you can do. One is in my office, I try not to do on my computer focus time generally. I'll go to a laptop that I don't have my Outlook open, or I'll go to an area in the back of my office, I have a couch. Now you say, well, David, I don't have that. I have a cubicle. Fair enough. In my office, I will turn off my Outlook. Now I might leave the calendar up, but I turn off the email. I literally click it closed. Sure, it would take me 30 seconds to reboot it, check email. It's like taking the cookies and moving them on top of a shelf across the room. If I can design my environment to make it a little bit easier, it makes a difference. And I'll go one last tip here for focus time. We as human beings become conditioned by our environment. So in my office, there's a couch. That couch is where I've written almost every one of my books. When I'm doing writing, I do it on that couch. That couch is a cue, a conditioned cue for me that I'm going to do my high value activity, write another book. Without that couch, I wouldn't have written probably any of my 12 books. With that couch, it's a secret weapon. So for you, can you have a spot in your office, a chair in your office? Could you have a spot like a conference room you go into? 
Could it be a cafe? I know right now we can't do that, but later on, is there a cafe I could go to? Can I work from home one morning per week? When I control my environment, it makes it much easier for the environment to cue me into those behaviors of focus. That reminds me of a book I read recently. It's called On Writing by Stephen King. He talks about his writing habits, and one of the things that he does is he has a separate room for writing. He's very religious in his consistency. Of He goes in that room, I think, at the same time every day, and he doesn't leave until he hits a certain number of words, but the computer in that room does not have access to the internet, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't bring a phone in. And he knows that what does he do that adds the most value? Because he's got to talk to agents. He's got to talk to the business side of his work. But what he does to add value is he writes and he knows that and he puts the time in and physically getting out of your regular work to your focused work, I think is a great idea. I'm going to try it. That's great. And the reason, again, why most people don't do it is we're afraid of what we're going to miss. And so I call it the needle in the haystack. And so, for example, in the book, we talked in the chapter about leveraging better design. Look, I had a client of ours. Her name was Andrea. She was thinking, I'm going to be on email all the time because I might miss a customer email that's really important for her retail business. I asked her, I said, how often does it happen? Well, maybe very rare. I said, well, how often? She put the number to about one out of every thousand emails would be a really, really critical thing. I said, this is crazy. You're reading 999 emails to find that one. It's like the needle in the haystack. Couldn't we just get rid of the haystack and deliver the needle in a different way? Could you give them a a different mechanism to get a hold of you? Could you set up a separate email? Could you have them have your assistant screen and text you? Could you give them a WhatsApp account only for emergencies? Could you give them a hotline number? Could you give them a different way? Like, I don't want my staff having to do emails at night on the weekend. For example, Larry, who runs our technology, if he answers email at night on the weekend, I'm going to give him a hard time about that. I want him to be with his family during that time. But if our site goes down, I need to be able to reach him, right? So he knows I'll give him a text on his cell phone. I don't use text lightly in our company. For us, a text is kind of, hey, this is a one. This is an emergency that matters. But all the other stuff can wait until Monday morning. Enjoy your weekend. And when we have that different mechanism to deliver that high value emergency, we don't have to have this low level vigilance for email that's nonstop. And it frees up so much bandwidth for you to be creative, productive, and create more value. I'm glad you brought up the texting thing because that's sort of email next level in some ways, as far as at least as far as interruption. The thing about synchronous and asynchronous. So the text is more synchronous. So you, you're you're saying, hey, David, I need to talk to you right now. I need to get your attention. I'm gonna try to pull you out of whatever you're doing. Email to me is a little bit more. I'm just gonna drop a message to David. When he gets back to me, he will. And I'm already in most environments kind of conditioned to having a time lag. So texting, if you're in an environment where texting just everyone has the freedom to take each other's time, that could just be extremely frustrating. Texting has its place. If I were in an environment that everyone had talked by text, personally, I would make sure I had a different cell phone for when I was not at work. I would buy a second line, spend 30, 40 bucks a month on it, because otherwise I'm going to get roped in. In my world, no one texts lightly. If I saw my staff texting lightly, I get on their case about it. That's just not our culture. But if I was in that culture, then I would find ways that during my focus time, I turn my text off. I need to give people an alternative to get me in a true emergency to find well. Now, if it can't be texting because I already screwed that one up, then maybe I'll use WhatsApp or maybe I'll use a different mechanism that they can get that. Maybe I'll have them 
call my assistant and let her tap me on the shoulder. I do need to give them a mechanism. For example, maybe I'll call them. And if they ignore the call, but I call back a second or a third time, they know this is a true emergency. But please, most people think stuff is urgent. It's not. It's just you're impatient. And if you have an honest conversation about the cost, about the burden on everybody, you know, we want our stuff answered quickly, but that means that everybody else is going to be responding and distracted just like they expect fast responses from us. And the cost is just too high. And when we get clean on that, we change and create a different culture and say, here's some ground rules. Let's do an experiment. 30 days, an experiment. Here's the ground rules. Here's what we hope to see. Here's what we'll pay attention to. Halfway through, we have a conversation of what's working well, what isn't working well that we want to adjust going forward for the second half of this experiment. And I think any company that does that for even 30 days will never go back to the old, chaotic, wild west ways. Some of these messaging apps that reside on the desktop are just as bad, if not worse, as far as interruptions. So I think that's a good point. I want to talk about the value of having an assistant because you've brought it up several times. Let's go into it a little deeper because that's something that I personally have had a challenge with. The reason why is it's actually a medical condition called control-itis. That's right. <laughs> so help me overcome my medical condition here, David. If I was to get an assistant, build an assistant into my workflow, how do I do it and how would it change my life? Great question. So I had my first assistant, but I was so scared of asking her to do stuff 24 years ago. Oh, let me fax that for you because I'm scared of asking you to do something demeaning like fax something back then. Crazy, right? Crazy. Nowadays, I have two assistants. One that's here local because I work remotely. So she comes over to my office and does local stuff. If I need my tires changed because of snow versus summer seasons where I live in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, she does that. And then I have Emily who works remotely, who's about eight hour drive from where I live. And the two of them, Tiffany and Emily are godsend. So once you get used to it, you will never go back. But that said, the first steps to do is to just start keeping a sheet of paper at the side of your desk. As you start doing things to the day, keep adding what you did today could an assistant have done part or all of. Secondly, once that list starts showing pretty long, now we have to ask, who would be the right assistant for me? Do I need a full-time person, a part-time person, on-site, on a distant, overseas? So I can start small. If I've got staff, could one of the people I currently have be used across multiple people? That said, I need to know myself first. The reason why people screw up with an assistant is because they hire the wrong person. For me, I'm not a talker. I'm not. I don't really want interaction. So my assistant can't be someone who takes that personally. Oh, David hasn't talked with me for four days now. He must be angry. I must be doing a bad job. I cannot have a nervous assistant. Other people, they need to talk and interact. That would freak my assistant out. My assistants don't want that interaction because they know it's not who I am. I want to delegate auditorily. So I'll use an app to leave quick 10-second to maybe 10-minute messages for people. I want you to do this off the top of mind. Quick will touch of the button. Other people want to delegate by writing it out. Some people want to have phone conversation. Some people want to meet. If I meet or talk on the phone, that two-minute delegation just turned into 10 minutes. I'm not interested in that. So whoever I hire has to be able to accommodate my information delegation style, and I don't want them to delegate back to me. I don't want them to share information auditorily. I don't want audio messages. I want them to give me updates in writing, either through a quick email or in most cases, through a project management tool. We use Asana. 
for my assistants and I, but I want to see it because I can read it about 10 times faster and have it there for a reminder for me. So when I know who I want to hire and I know what I want them to do, now there's two more things I would share as a quick suggestion. One is with your assistant, make part of their role that they're going to create the system for being a great assistant for you right from the very start. So I've gone through probably 16, 17 assistants over the last 24 years. When they're really good, I promote them and they still work with me. When they're not or they have a life change, one of my assistants went to vet school, fantastic. I wish her well. But I want the next assistant to start from where the other person left off, which means documentation, processes, procedures, historic key information being saved in organized ways. And then the final kind of tip I'll share here, one list to rule them all. Think of the, the Lord of the Rings. I don't want them managing the to-dos on email. I want them to have one list that has everything that I've asked them to do in one place. Because as long as I see it on the list, I can relax and know that at least they've captured it correctly. So those are some quick tips that I've found for me. They have to admin their own list. Whoever writes it down owns it. If I write it on the list for them, I still psychically and emotionally own it. They write it, they own it. And because it's on the list, I can quickly scan down through it and make sure that I spot check that they've got it all done. I'd like to end on this idea of, well, what do we do with the time that if we are able to really implement a system like this, what will motivate us to do that? What do we do with the time? Because you've got wonderful stories in the book about clients you've worked with that have literally had life-changing sorts of experiences where reconnecting with family or spouses or saving relationships, that I think is the ultimate value of what a system like this is doing, David. Maybe you could speak a little to that. The subtitle for the Freedom Formula was How to Succeed in Business Without Sacrificing Family, Health, or Life. And when we look at things in connection, business matters, but our life matters a whole lot more. Business success is what I'll call a sufficiency need. We need a certain amount of success to feel purpose, to take care of our economic needs. But at a certain point, we have to be careful not to let habit, ego, and self-aggrandizement pull us to just being that person chasing after more, more, more. And there's a wonderful book. The title by itself was probably enough. The book was by John Bogle, one of the famous investors, value investor starter of Vanguard. The book was called Enough. And so my friend Stephanie Harkness asked me, three questions years ago. And Stephanie is one of the most brilliant entrepreneurs I've ever met. Plus, she's life successful. Her and her husband, Jack, have been married for over 50 years. Stephanie was the former chairperson of the National Association of Manufacturers. She's built a hundred plus million dollar company. She said three questions, right? What matters most? How much is enough? And for the sake of what? And when we ask those questions, work matters, but your family, your health, and having a life beyond that matters a heck of a lot more. And so I know for me, those three questions keep me in balance. That's great. I have not read the Bogle book. I am a big fan of Jack Bogle, so I'm going to definitely check that out. I didn't know he wrote a book about enough. I can't wait to read about it. David, this has been just a wonderful conversation. Where can people learn more about what you do in the Freedom Formula? Absolutely. First of all, you can get a copy of the Freedom Formula, pretty much any bookstore they go into or in today's world, Amazon or barnesandnoble.com. Number two, take a look at the website that comes with the book. What we've learned is I probably had to cut out maybe 100,000 words out of the book. My publisher was freaking out. It was going to be about 900 pages. So they made me cut. So what I did was I said, okay, 
I'm going to bend the rules a little bit. And I created a, a bonus website where we put several hours of video, all PDF tools. Basically, I'm an entrepreneur. So if I can't do it one way, fine, I'll find a different way around it. So if they go to freedomtoolkit.com, they can actually get a hold of those tools. They can even get a peek of the first two chapters of the book and read it for themselves. But freedomtoolkit.com would be where I would send them to. Great. I will put a link to that in the show notes as well. And I just want to say, David, thanks for being on The Good Life. I appreciate that, Sean. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to The Good Life Podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe, provide a review in Apple or Spotify, and visit our website at seanpmurray.net. Until next time, have a wonderful week.